Take your copy of the scriptures, God's word. Trust that you brought brought that with you. And uh, let's open to Acts chapter 6. We're continuing in our series in the book of Acts. And last week we uh, began or we're in chapter 6 at a very pivotal juncture in the life of the church and in our uh, going through God's word. As you're turning to that, I want to remind you, Jesus said in Matthew 28 to go, go into all the world, make disciples. And that was that we call that the great what? The great commission. We're committed to the great commission. And as we look several weeks back in Acts chapter 1-8, when he uh, told the disciples after, right before he, uh, after the resurrection and before he ascended, he told the disciples to go and to wait on the, for the coming of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would give them power. And part of that empowerment wasn't just to have a, a nice little uh, vibrant service in the upper room, but it was for the fulfillment of what Jesus said in Matthew 28 is to fulfill the Great Commission. He knew, and hopefully we do, that we cannot fulfill the purposes of God all by ourselves. That's why He has equipped, equipped us with the Spirit. He's empowered us with the Spirit. And just as the disciples were empowered with the Spirit, and in Acts chapter 1-8, He said that you will be my witnesses. And most of you uh, are aware because we mention it, but that word witness... Uh, also in the, the Greek, because the New Testament was written in Greek, but that word witness is the word we get the word martyr. And that's what Stephen was. He was a martyr. So imagine how that changes the dynamic that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall be my martyrs. How many is ready to sign up for that church, right? That, that, that's a whole different type of level of commitment. And so Jesus said that when you receive power, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall be my witnesses, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, uh, Judea, Samaria, in other words, the local, and it'll expand into the region, but eventually it's to the ends of the earth, but it starts in Jerusalem. And so in the book of Acts, it's interesting the way that Luke, the author, structured the book of Acts because at every juncture you see this outline of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So we, when we come to chapter 8, we're going to see really not that Jerusalem disappears, but we're going to see the focus and the growth of the growing church move from Jerusalem now to beyond the Jerusalem borders of Judea and Samaria, fulfilling the great commission of what Jesus set out to do. We're calling this unfinished. Because in Acts chapter uh, 1, uh, verse 1, it speaks about where Luke, the author, says, I'm writing you to those things that Jesus began to do. And so that tells us that there's much that needs to be finished of what Jesus has commissioned us to do. Now, we're not finishing redemption. We're not finishing forgiveness and the cross. But we're finishing the mission of what Jesus has uh, has come to do, and now he has given that commission or commands to us. And so that's why we call this unfinished. The work and the progress of the gospel is not yet finished. In fact, Jesus even said that this gospel must be preached to the, all the earth, to the ends of the earth, before he comes, before he returns. Did he not say that? He didn't say, well, I hope it, I hope it does, but he said it must be preached to all creatures. And so we are continuing that. Here we are over 2,000 years later, Grace Church, that we are part of the unfinished work. We are fulfilling the purpose and mandate of Christ. And we come to Acts chapter 6. That's a chapter that a couple weeks back there was a complaint in the church and you had these Greek widows, Jewish Greek widows, and they weren't getting their daily allotment of uh, the food distribution. Remember we said the church could easily maybe be, you know, 15,000. Some speculate 20,000 people. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of folks. And so already they were doing mercy ministries. They were already taking care of the needs of the widows. That's rooted in uh, the law, you know, the caring for the, the, the widow and the orphan. So they were doing that task. Yes, they were preaching the gospel. Yes, people were coming to Christ, but they were also doing these mercy ministries. And it was getting so big that it says in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, that there arose a complaint. Now, I don't know about you, but that encourages me. Here this church full of the Spirit, they got complainers. 
Feels right at home, doesn't it? <laughs> right? So, but it isn't so much they had people that complain, it's what did they do about it, and they addressed that need. And one of the ways that they addressed that need is they, the apostles said, look, we, we, we can't leave uh, our priority of the word and prayer. It wasn't like they were saying, you know, that's beneath us. I, I, don't, I don't do floors, right? They weren't saying that. They were recognizing that their purpose and commission was to, to teach, to be uh, teaching the word, to be uh, involved in prayer. That was where their focus was to be. And so they said, uh, appoint seven men among you. They, they approved them. They commissioned them. And they were, they were men, Greeks, because the issue was with these Greek widows. So they were people that had, when I say Greeks, I mean they were Jewish. Everybody was Jewish in the, in the church there. That's where it was at. But their culture and ethnic, ethnicity, they might have grown up outside of Jerusalem, maybe where it was more Greek culture, and they found their ways back. So they're, it's kind of like, now I know this isn't a great example, but you know, it's kind of like if you grew up in New Hampshire and you come and buy a house in Kathleen. Okay? You know, it's just, it's just different, right? Nick and Moe's, you know? I mean, it's just different, right? Downtown Kathleen. So anyway, so you had this cultural, but they were all Christians. They were Jewish in their, in their but, you know, they just had different, uh, different backgrounds. And so they appointed these seven men. And one of the seven men was Stephen, okay? So that's, now we see Stephen taking on a little bit more role here in, in what happens. And so when we come to Acts chapter 6, uh, I believe around, uh, let me see, and I, again, I'm going to kind of do a lot of survey real quick, and then we're going to get some uh, application uh, fairly quickly. But I, rather than reading a lot, I just want to kind of get to where, what's going on here. And uh, last week we talked about uh, the character of Stephen, okay? And in other words, when Stephen stood before these agitators, people that were challenging the gospel, yes, he was courageous. Yes, he had an effective argument. In fact, the Bible says that his argument and his ability to speak was so effective, they couldn't refute him, okay? But it wasn't that he just was, had such a crafty way of speaking and could, could you know, wax eloquently, but his character. Of course, the Bible says that he was full of the Holy Spirit. That was one of the criteria of these early, what we might refer to as deacons. Uh, they had to be full of the Holy Spirit. So here he was, full of the Holy Spirit when he was speaking. And uh, we noted last week the character of Stephen. We're not going to review that. And uh, those and other, the whole series is online, and you can um, listen to that and find that. Uh, on our website. But this morning, I want us to focus not on the character of Stephen, but zero in now on the courage of Stephen, actually what began to take place here. And uh, we should have Acts 6, 8 through 14 on the screen, and you can follow along. I'm reading from the ESV on the screen. And uh, if you have your Bible, uh, you can follow there or just look on the screen for this as I read it and you listen. And the Bible says, and they, this is again talking about Stephen, do I not have that? Okay, good. You're just waiting on me. You're so, you're so sharp. Tilly up there, she just, she didn't miss a beat. She's waiting on me. See, she's got phrases and cues down. Do you know Sean just did this? See, just did that. See, I do this. No, anyway. All right, look at verse, uh, I'm reading, it's verse 12. Let's skip down. Yeah, verse 12. And, and this is what, this is, this is kind of where I want to summarize uh, is that there was this controversy around Stephen, and there was this group called the Freedmen. We're not really sure, but they, it says the synagogue of the Freedmen. Basically, I mean, they had multiple, just like, you know, today. We have a lot of different churches. We're all, you know, there's Christian, but yet you have different, you have Baptist, Lutheran, Presbyterian. I know that's, again, not exactly a good parallel, but you had different synagogues made up or formed by maybe people with different backgrounds or heritage or whatever. They were still committed as Jews around the law, but they might have had a different reason for coming together. And so this group of the synagogue of the freedmen was founded, or their heritage, were former uh, slaves, Jewish slaves, that had been taken to Rome about 64 years before Christ, and eventually they were freed, thus the name freed men, all right? So that, I know that's really exciting. Anyway, so they were freed up, and they came back to Jerusalem, and naturally they formed their own you know, they began to hang out together. They had something in common, and they had children and families, and they had this, 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 this uh, connection. And so that's 
where uh, that name comes from or that group. Some people speculate that maybe Stephen was a part of this group, and they were so angry that one of their own was preaching this cross and talking about Jesus that it really stirred the anger. So we come to verse 12 that's on the screen, and it says, and they, that's this, this group of, of Jewish uh, religionists, and they stirred up the people and the elders and scribes, and they came upon him and seized him. All right, talking about Stephen here. They came upon him and seized him, overtook him, and brought him before the council. That council is the Sanhedrin. That was kind of the Jewish Supreme Court. It was mostly made up of Sadducees, but it also had Pharisees with it, and they were the kind of the Supreme Court that handled the legal uh, law issues. Now, remember, Israel is under the authority and dominion of Rome, okay? So they allowed them to kind of do their own thing as long as they paid their taxes and didn't cause any trouble. Remember, that's why Pilate, he said, look, you know, Pilate's philosophy was very pragmatic. He said, you know, essentially said, look, I don't care what you do, just don't cause, don't make me come down there at 3 a.m. and deal with your guys, you know? Don't keep the taxes and the money flowing. Don't cause any problems. I don't want to have any attention back to the bosses in Rome. Pilate was only interested in making sure everybody behaved. That's all he cared about, right? And so that was kind of the way that the government treated uh, the Jews and their religious structures and the same. They let them kind of govern themselves to a point, okay? They couldn't execute anybody, but they allowed them some uh, uh, leeway in the sense if they uh, were, as we see with Stephen, who was stoned to death. And so they stirred up the people, brought them before the council, verse 13, and they set up false witnesses. Where have we heard that before? Jesus, right? And they set up false witnesses who said, false witnesses, again, made it up, this man, talking about Stephen, never ceases. Now, here's their two issues of what was causing a big deal, causing a problem. The accusation was before the Sanhedrin was that this man never ceases to speak words against two things, the holy place, which is the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So what stirred up such a violent reaction among these people? Why were they so hostile in coming after and seizing Stephen and bringing him for the council? It's because Stephen had the audacity to preach what we call the new covenant, that Jesus Christ was the end of the law, that he superseded Moses, that he is the fulfillment of the law, that we are not under the law. We are not under the old structures any longer, but Jesus has fulfilled all, the, all those things. They tried to debate him. They tried to argue with him. They brought, again, as we saw, they brought false witnesses to attack him. That didn't work. And so they accused him of speaking against the temple, this holy place, and the law. That was their two things. And then, of course, uh, by insinuating that Moses was, that we are no longer ha uh, have to obey uh, the teachings of Moses, et cetera, et cetera. What they had done is they took these things that God made. Did God create the law, what we call the law? And when I say the law, I'm not just talking about the Ten Commandments. I'm talking about the entirety of the law. I mean, you had the moral law, you had the ceremonial law, civic laws, all those things that were meant for the governance and control of Israel for them to be this godly nation, okay? That was the original intent. Remember what Jesus said? He, he told, remember when he accused the Pharisees, he said, you love your traditions more than, than God. What had happened is they began to add to the, the law. They began to add to. So, for example, the fourth commandment is what? Ah, you didn't know you were going to get a quiz this morning. Fourth commandment is don't forget the Sabbath. Obey the Sabbath, right? Which we, are not, we don't do. Sunday is not the Sabbath, okay? Okay, that's a whole other sermon. Uh, it's the Lord's Day. That's why you always hear me call it the Lord's Day, okay? But under the Jewish, the, sixth, the seventh day of the week was what? The Sabbath, right? And so what the Pharisees and the teachers did over time is they, they if it said obey the Sabbath, they're going to help you obey the Sabbath, and they added teachings and understandings and, and, and we would say volumes of things to help you make sure that there wasn't any possibility or way of life 
that you could violate or break the Sabbath. I mean, I mean, it was, a, it was an elaborate, and that was just one example. And you can, you can look around at that. So when Jesus said, you love your traditions, he wasn't saying, you love the Old Testament more than me. He's saying, you love what you, this, this thing that you've created that has added to God's word, okay? So when we come to uh, this, this, this accusation that, and it was really true, Stephen was proclaiming Jesus as, as that we are under the new covenant, that Jesus, we are under the law of Christ, that Jesus has fulfilled the law. Remember what Jesus said? I haven't come to demolish the law, but I've come to do what? To fulfill it, okay? He is the fulfillment of the law. And so that was, that was in a way accurate, but what they had done is they had taken the law, the temple, basically the, 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 the Old Testament system to a degree, and what they had done is they had taken these God-given structures. Did God give them instructions, David, Solomon, about building the temple? Yeah. And then again, the prototype goes back to the tabernacle. Uh, the law, I mean, God gave Moses the, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. So, again, these were godly things that God made, okay, that God had given. But what they had done is instead of seeing them as means that points them to worship God and to love thy neighbor as thyself and to uh, love God and glorify God, they began to look to the structures as a means of being righteous before God. So instead of the law being about glorifying God and my sin before God and glorifying God and, 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 and obeying God out of, out of my love for him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, instead of it being a, a me, it became kind of a rule book for me to be righteous. Remember if you're in uh, Wednesday nights in our Galatian study, we've been talking about that for weeks. That's, that's their whole issue and problem there. Instead of the temple being something that was to honor God, it was never meant to confine God. You can't do that, right? God is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere at once. He's, he, he's sovereign. He can't be confined to a particular structure. But it was a meeting place where the presence of God and the people would gather in the sacrificial system, which, again, could never atone for sin. The animal sacrifices, the, you know, you go back in Leviticus 16, and you look at all those things, and they were only meant to point to the one who would come and be the final sacrifice. Even Moses said, when they, when they wanted to kind of uh, make him kind of the, 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 you know, the, kind of the main, uh, that, that he's our example, he said, look, there's one coming after me. And he wasn't talking about Joshua. He was pointing ahead that God was going to send a Messiah. And when you look at the history of Israel and all the leaders that God put in there, they all failed. I mean, think about David, how wonderful David is, right? Think about his failures. Solomon. I mean, all the leaders failed, but in some way, they were prototypes of the true leader that God had promised, and that leader is who? Jesus Christ, Messiah, right? So that's what Stephen is saying, and guess what? They didn't want to hear that because he was challenging their traditions. He was challenging the very thing they had pinned their entire salvation around, the law, the temple, the whole system. But God wasn't in that old system, Right? It was now in Christ. Christ has fulfilled those things. And so they began to attack him. Let me just kind of say as a side note here as before we give some uh, application in a moment. It should remind us, Stephen, as you listen to this, and, and I hope you go back and read chapter 7. It'll take you maybe 15 minutes to read chapter 7. Not now, okay, uh, but later. Uh, <laughs> But read chapter 7, and what you'll find is you'll find that Stephen gives a timeline of biblical history, okay? I mean, he starts with Abraham and the patriarchs and Moses, and he starts with this. And what he's doing is he's showing the design of God's Word, the design of redemption from, from beginning to end was all part of this plan of bringing forth Christ, of fulfilling Christ. What are they doing? They're accusing him of preaching some false religion. What he's doing in chapter 7, he's giving them a Bible lesson by showing them, no, Jesus is the fulfillment of biblical history. And when you read chapter 7, you'll just see that flow. But one of the things that Stephen does is he shows that even in Israel, even in a church, anywhere, God always has believing Israelites and he has unbelieving Israelites. There's believers who respond to the truth of God's word and there are those who have Israelite or Jews by name. Remember Paul said in Romans, not everyone who is 
a Jew is a true Jew? What is he saying? He's saying, look, not everyone who just has the ID card really is authentic. Just because they're born in Israel or their Jewish heritage or, or whatever, that it's a matter of being circumcised of the heart. Remember, guys, on Wednesday, Galatians, they were focused on outward stuff and being, you know, religious. Now he's saying it's about the heart. Jesus is always dealing with the heart. Religious leaders said, your disciples don't ceremonially wash their hands. And Jesus said, it isn't what goes into a man that corrupts him. It is what comes out of his mouth because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Am I talking fast? It's because i got a lot to get in, and I haven't had that much coffee either. <laughs> but let me just say this as a side note. So, Jesus said, or Acts 6.10 says they couldn't withstand the wisdom and spirit with which Peter was speaking. And this isn't really part of this, but I just want to make this little side note. Remember Jesus told his disciples, it's over in Luke 21, he said, look, don't be afraid when you're hauled before magistrates and authorities that, that the Spirit of God will give you words to speak in that hour, in that moment, right? Stephen's in the middle of this antagonistic, almost demonically hated hate, hatred for him. And what does Stephen do? He stands his ground on truth. And Stephen stands there, and the Spirit of God, we see this, the Spirit of God, because remember, he's a man full of the Spirit, and the Spirit of God gives him words to speak. And I thought, you know, what about us? What about you? Uh, when we have people who are verbally assaulting us, is there a lesson here? Is there something, you know what, you don't have to assault back. Stephen didn't do that. Peter says that even Jesus didn't do that. And what will happen? If you roll up your sleeves and step back and you're going to take a swing at them and go after them or challenge them, what's going to happen? Well, you'll probably get hurt, uh, and you'll certainly have a bad testimony for the Lord. Now, I won't ask if anybody in here has reacted, and afterwards you think, oh, my goodness, all that time I've been trying to build up my witness and, you know, just blown away. So then you got to apologize and go back. And God in his grace uses that. But you know what we need to do? We need to wait for the Spirit of God to give us words that we need in a timely manner. And a lot of times it just means being um, quick to listen and slow to speak. Quick to listen to the God's Spirit and not be... See, I, 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 can, I can talk real quick. I mean, thought and da-da-da-da. And boy, that has gotten me in trouble. It's gotten me in trouble. And you know it has. But if you wait patiently and you, say, and you rely on the Spirit of God. Now, sometimes if you listen patiently and don't take their words personally or the attack, uh, you might draw some by your testimony uh, who may respond positively uh, as to the gospel. I thought about Paul and Barnabas when they were in jail. Or Paul and Silas. Was it Paul and Silas? Paul Quick. Come on. Paul and Silas or Paul and Mark? It was Paul. I forget who was with him. But I think it was Silas. And it's in Acts. And we'll get there. But it was Paul and Silas. Remember they, in the midnight hour and they sang? Come on. Word of life. Was it Silas, right? All right. It wasn't Fred or anybody. like It was Silas, right? Silas. All right. We got that cleared up. And uh, what are they doing? They're singing. They're worshiping the Lord. And it says on all the jailers were doing, they were listening to them. Now, they were, they were in a moment of trial and suffering. And what are, these, what are their jailers or their persecutors or the ones that put them in there? They're listening. And so when that, when that, that earthquake or when the doors open and, 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 you know, the jailers, I mean, they were immediate because they had heard and thought, what kind of people are these that in the midst of suffering they can worship God? Do you think people watch you when you go through tough times? trials? Do you think that's an opportunity? But here's the thing we got to be honest with, is that sometimes it may cause them to respond, yes, positively, you know, I want to know the Lord, Paul, I want to know Maggie, I want to know about this Jesus. But you know what? Sometimes it might make them more hostile. Either way, God's in charge, right? Wait for the Lord and let him give you words to say. Back to Acts. Acts Seven. This is the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts. And again, I encourage you to read it. 
And as Stephen is walking through it, this is what I want you to kind of, this is kind of the cliff notes of it. He is showing them in the history of Israel. It's a wonderful timeline of biblical history that's all culminating, climaxing in the coming of Christ. And as you read it, you'll see that he's weaving two groups together in this biblical history, two distinct ways of responding to God, believing Israel and unbelieving Israel. And if you don't catch this, then what we read in uh, verse 54 won't, won't make sense. And so as he is doing this, he's showing them that throughout biblical history in Israel, in Israel, there's always been believers who responded positively to God, and there were those who rejected and rebelled against God. Remember that group that was having a little party at the bottom of Mount Sinai? They got a little impatient. What were they doing? I mean, Moses wasn't gone, what? I don't know how long he was gone, but it wasn't that long. And they're already down there crafting an idol. You know, I mean, it's like, can't I go away for two hours and meet God and you already are going back into this? But that's man's heart, right? Stephen's goal is to show that when Messiah finally came, speaking of this group, That was their moment. That was their day of salvation. These are the same people and same group. It it, it hadn't passed that far away. That when Messiah was come, when Jesus walked among them, that was their moment to embrace God's messenger, the Messiah. And what did they do? They did, verse 51, they did exactly what their fathers did, is they rejected and killed the prophets. And he says, you're no better, and you're, in fact, you're worse. You're worse because you've rejected the ultimate messenger. You've rejected the one of promise that God has slain before the foundation of the earth, the Lamb of God. You've rejected Jesus. Verse 52, I don't think it'll be on the screen. It says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Notice he says, your fathers. He's not saying everybody in Israel, but he said, your fathers. You're part of that line that's unbelieving Israelites. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. You see that should be capitalized. If it's not, get another Bible. Whom you have now, notice he says, whom you, you have now betrayed and murdered. He's laying the death of Christ right at them. And then he says, you people that love the law, verse 53, you who receive the law as delivered by angels, because that's Jewish tradition, he says, you didn't even keep it. You say you love the law, but you didn't even keep the law. So when you come to verse 54, look at their reaction. When they heard these things, they were really, really angry. It says, the ESV says, they were enraged. The NIV says, they were furious. And they ground their teeth at him. Now, my dentist gave me a little help in that area, but I don't think that's what this is. They were angry. They gnashed their teeth. I mean, that is a rage. Because what was Stephen doing? He was challenging the very thing they were pinning their entire sense of righteousness before God upon. And he was saying, you are building, you have built a house on sand. And they were enraged. Verse 55, but he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. Isn't this beautiful? And saw what? The glory of God. Reminds me of Isaiah 6. And Jesus, what is Jesus doing? Standing at the right hand of God. I've got something I was going to read later, but I'll read it now because I just can't wait to read it. Um, You know, the Bible tells us that after Jesus ascended, there's many verses. Hebrews has three or four verses. It speaks about Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. That's speaking of Jesus' finished, completed work. Done. Right? Isn't that what the Bible says? Right? We know that. So why, when Jesus, when Stephen saw Jesus, he was standing? And there's a couple of thoughts of this. One is he's standing to welcome Stephen into his presence in heaven as soon as he died, and certainly that would have been true. But I like this other 
other suggestion. And Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32, remember Jesus said these words, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. Could it be that Jesus was standing in the presence of the Father, confessing? He's mine. He's mine. He belongs to me. I don't know about you. Now, I don't know if Jesus stands every time. Because honestly, most of the trouble I get into is my own doing. Right? Well, don't know. You don't need to. It's my own doing. I've not experienced, and, and you probably haven't either, persecution anywhere near this level. We, we, we just don't. We just don't. Now, could we? Yeah. But let's step it back and, and maybe draw this, and hopefully it's not reading too much in it. Jesus sees when I'm walking through suffering and when I'm trusting him for my strength. I just believe Jesus, yeah, yeah, he's one of mine. She's one of mine. It gets his attention when we're saying, Jesus, I'm walking through this valley of the shadow of death. And I know what your word says. You will never leave me nor, nor forsake me. You're not off creating some universe. You're not off doing some. No. You see exactly where I'm at. You see me trusting and believing in you. And I believe, Jesus, your eyes are on me. And I can be confident as I walk through that valley. As I go through that suffering. As I go through that hardship that you will never leave me nor forsake me. Well, in a much greater way, Jesus standing. Notice what their response was. They cried out, verse 57, with a loud voice and stopped their ears. What are these people, 12? They stopped their ears. Isn't that what you remember as a kid? When somebody would tell you, you put your fingers, you know, it's like they just, they're, it's like they're having a complete meltdown. Remember, Stephen isn't just some great orator. He's a man full of the Spirit of God. This is an anointed, powerful moment that is life or death. And in God's mercy, he sends them, Stephen, one more time. Get it right. Follow Jesus. And what do they do? They want to kill him. It says they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him for blasphemy. It didn't say that, but that's probably what they trumped up charge. And, and we, we will obviously move in this. But notice Luke just puts this little line in there. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man by the name of... Now, most people believe that Saul, who we know as Paul when he's converted who's really going to take on prominence from chapter 9 on. Remember in Galatians 1, he talks about how he tried to destroy the church of God. Tried. Another place he gave testimony about hauling men and women and households into jail. And I mean, this guy was, was obsessed in believing that what he was doing, he was doing the will of God by persecuting this cult. You realize, and I, I don't know if I said this, but you know, Christianity suffered intense persecution for the first 400 years. And it was early in maybe 424 or so under Constantine in Rome that he legalized the Christian religion. Up until that point, they were, they were severely persecuted by the Romans and the Jews. They knew no peace, these believers. And most people believe that this mob act, because it wasn't... It wasn't even according to the law, it was really a mob response in the way they did this, that the person behind this whole instigation was Saul or Paul. In fact, I don't have the reference off of my head, but even he refers back to this look on Stephen's face. Do you think it kept him up at night once he became? Do you believe that even in this death, God in his sovereignty used the short life of this man for a greater and higher purpose. You ever wonder, God, Caiaphas, I mean, he was a rotten guy. He's, he's, he's there. Why didn't you take him out? Why'd you, why'd you let Stephen go? Why'd you let Stephen get killed? 
Think about people that we admire and even in, in missionaries and, and around the world and their lives are cut short. But you know, I think it was Tertullian that said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Jesus said, don't be shocked when they come after you and they persecute you. Why? They came after me, they're coming after you. Verse 59, and boy, this is, this is a message in a message. Verse 59 says, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out. Now that didn't really, I like what the NIV, NIV says. It says that as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen prayed. Think about that. Is that gonna be, would that be your reaction if you were being stoned? Is your kneeling down and praying, and you got rocks hurling at you to kill you, when you're being attacked, when you're being attacked for whatever unjustly and somebody's coming after you verbally, hopefully not physically or whatever, is your first impulse is to pray for my enemies? Really, a Christian shouldn't have any enemies. It's just people that need, and we see what happened to Stephen. He said, Lord, forgive them. Verse 60, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Now, falling asleep is just a way that the Bible speaks about death. The Bible doesn't teach about a soul sleeping and then doesn't teach like, you know, a dog or an animal, you know, and resurrect. It doesn't teach that like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or Seven-day Adventists and some of the different uh, aberrant groups uh, that, you know, that to die were immediately in the presence of the Lord. That's what the Bible teaches. It doesn't teach some, you know, neutral zone or, or you're, you know, you've heard that. Some people teach that. The point is, is that Stephen, in the midst of this hellion group, what does he do? He dies a peaceful death. Just by using that word, he fell asleep. Do you think that he understood what the Scripture would say about the joy of the Lord is my strength? What, you know, who shall separate me? Paul would write in Romans 8, the very one holding the coats, making sure their Armani jackets don't get dirty. He's more concerned about dirt on the jackets than the murder of an innocent man. What does that tell you about his, his heart? Let me give you four things in seven minutes. Okay? What's our, what's our takeaway today? As we stand for Christ, as we stand for truth. Number one, remember the reality of the sinful heart. Remember the reality of the sinful heart. When we bear witness for Christ, we are speaking to hearts that have been blinded by Satan and hardened by sin. Don't forget that. Why couldn't these men see that Jesus Christ was God's Messiah? Why weren't they persuaded by the wonders and signs that Stephen performed? Because it says that, uh, uh, that he did those things in, in verse 8 and 9. Uh, why weren't they persuaded by those things? Because the Bible says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they may not see the light of the gospel. Jesus even asked the Jews of his day who did not believe, he said, Why do you not understand what I'm saying? John 8. And he answered his own question. It is because you cannot. That's ability. It's because the reason you don't believe is because you don't have the ability to believe because you're dead in your sins. You are blind. No one can come to me, Jesus said in John 6. That speaks of ability. No one can come to me. Remember when you were in school, the teacher, Mrs. Jones, may I use the restroom? But if you said, Mrs. Jones, can I use the restroom? Mrs. Jones, in my seventh grade class, would say, I don't know, Timothy. Because she said, Timothy, I don't know if you can or you can't. And what she was teaching me, it was my English teacher, may I step out and use the restroom? See, can was, I don't know if you have the ability or not. I don't know. Can is a word of ability. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And that word draw is also a word... That means to drag him. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, when he told Nicodemus, unless one is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Regeneration precedes faith unless the Spirit of God opens the eyes, awakens the dead heart to believe the gospel. We cannot do this on our own. That's Jesus' point in John 3. Just as you can't birth yourself, it's an act of God that only God can do. And we need to remember the reality of the sinful heart. Secondly, recognize, and I'll explain this, recognize that religion is a blinding obstacle. Okay, now this is, uh, religious people are often the most hardened in their opposition to the gospel. What do I mean by religion? Well, I mean, Christianity is, I get that, but here's the way I'm, I'm thinking of it, is religion is more of a focus on an outward conformity of morals or an adherence to practices that those doing those things become a basis for my righteousness versus the gospel, which is an emphasis upon a changed heart that leads to changed behavior, not good behavior, hopefully I'll earn and get it right. No, the gospel is a focus on inner transformation, heart change, that is a work of the Spirit of God. So if you're not depending on the work of Christ and solely upon the finished work of Christ, I am righteous by Christ alone, not because you were confirmed as a baby, not because you were initiated into a particular church or any church, not because you were even believer's baptism, and you carry a a King James. I mean, you know, it doesn't have nothing to do with any of that, even being here. And this pains me because I would love to be really legalistic at this point. Even being here today, David, won't earn you any points unto heaven. Now, pastors hate saying that because we want to try to get you here, right? I'm kidding, but in other words, it, it, it's only in Jesus. Colossians 3.3, 3, my life is hidden with Christ in God. By grace you've been saved, not of your own works. Religion can never save a person from sin because it relies on human effort and good works. Religion often keeps a person from salvation because it fosters and promotes self-righteousness and pride. Those of you Wednesday nights, as we've been talking about in Galatians, a religious person must humble their pride and admit that they are sinner by coming to the cross of Jesus Christ for salvation. You see, that's why Paul would write about his fellow Jewish brethren when he would say that Christ crucified, that he preaches, 1 Corinthians 1.23, He says that it is a stumbling block to the Jews. Why is it a stumbling block? Because it's hard for them to get past that law and Moses and all those things that have been entrenched in. Remember Peter had a hard time doing that? When Jesus began to talk about how he must, must go to Jerusalem and suffer, what is Peter's response? In fact, he pulled him aside, didn't he? Remember? Pulled him aside. Said, Jesus, you know, uh, see my Sabbath school pins? You know, let me really, let me give you a little lesson here. Old Testament history, just between us. Because it says he pulled him aside. He said, that ain't happening. And Jesus said, for recorded for out, throughout eternity in the Bible, He said, get behind me, you wretched man. Is that what he said? Get behind me, Satan. Imagine Sean coming to me and, hey, pastor, I think we've got to do this. I said, Sean, get behind me, Satan. He would, in love, lay hands on me. I mean, you know? I mean, can you imagine how? But see, what did he say? What did Jesus say? He said, you are not mindful, Peter, of the things of God. God's ways are not our ways. And so the idea of a cross and a suffering Savior, Jesus said in Matthew 9, 12, he came to heal the sick. But people who think they are well but really are sick have no need for a doctor, right? And religious folks believe they're well and have no need for a Savior who can heal them. Thirdly, resistance to the truth is to be expected. Resistance to the truth is to be expected. When we bear witness for Christ, we should be prepared for opposition. Isn't that Satan's strategy already in Acts? I mean, he's tried to stir up trouble with the 
you know, the inside, outside, Ananias and Sapphira, Acts 6, complaining people in the church. He's going to try whatever he can do because the Bible gives us clear direction. We are not ignorant of his schemes, the Bible says, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Satan will not and does not and cannot because of his own evil nature. He's not going to sit on the sidelines while Stephen is up there boldly proclaiming Christ. And he's not going to sit on the sidelines when you're being faithful and standing for Christ. It may not be as bold as this. It may not be standing on the chair in the lunchroom preaching at 12 o'clock to the, you know, the group. They probably would fire you and throw you out. That's probably not... But when you take a stand and somebody, your boss or employer or somebody asks you to make an unethical decision, and by you saying, I can't do this, you can't or you won't, well, both. And you find yourself, if they can't fire you right away, they begin to isolate you, make your life miserable, and you think, gosh, you know, you know it's, just, it's just numbers. It's just numbers. What does it matter? It matters. Because today it's numbers, and tomorrow it's something else, and it's something else. Little compromises lead to bigger compromises. Have we done it? Have I done it? You bet. I, I, I have failed. But when you stand for truth, you obey God, and you leave the consequences to Him. Isn't that what Charles Stanley always says? Obey God and leave all the consequences to him. And the last is, there must be, fourth, there must be a reliance upon the sovereign grace of God for salvation. Stephen, it says, verse 8, he did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Do you realize there's never been a salvation because somebody did a miracle or, an, or, a, or had a great argument? Sometimes that's why we get tripped up in talking, people sharing the gospel, because we think, well, I don't know enough. Are you relying on your sense of knowledge or the Spirit? And so there must be a reliance that... Whatever situation, whatever the moment, there's a reliance that as they prayed in Acts chapter, and I lost the reference here, where they prayed, that in Acts where they prayed that their hearts would be open. That's how we should pray. How does, how does someone in Acts 16, 14... It says, thus, when we talk to people about the Lord, we must pray that he would open their hearts to respond to the gospel. Acts 16, 14. I want you to pray, God, use me in some dramatic way. Sometimes we'll say, you know, imagine if this person could be healed or, or if this could happen or that could happen, how that person, uh, they, they, would, they, would, they would just have to be converted. Jesus said that even if a man died and came back from the dead, you wouldn't believe. And he did that, and they still wouldn't believe. Why? Because unless God opens that dead heart, makes it alive, that's what regeneration means. When you have a dead battery, it needs to be re-generated. Only God can do that. And so, Stephen had superior logic. Wisdom in his debating, but it didn't break the hardness of their hearts. They were blind to even their contradictions and their logic and behavior. Proverbs 14, 12 said, There's a way that seems right unto a man, but its end is the way of death. Think about this. They accused Stephen of speaking against the law, and yet, in violation to the ninth commandment, what does the Bible say they did? They used false witnesses to slander him. So, their hypocrisy is there. And I, this, to me, is really interesting. Remember, there, one of their other accusations is they worried about Stephen saying that Jesus will destroy the temple. 
But wait a minute. You don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, so why are you worried about Jesus destroying the temple? I mean, again, they were in this rage of hatred. And when we are in that moment, nothing is logical. Cherry, if you'd come. I was going to use this last week, but one of the great hymns that's come out of the Reformation that's attributed to Martin Luther that we sang. Remember when the men's group sang A Mighty Fortress? Remember that? I said, yeah, we're trying to forget. No, they did, we, all, we all did a good job. But listen to the words. Don't play because it'll be confusing me reading a different song. <laughs> Remember the words Luther wrote? A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. And then verse 3, or stanza 3, it's a great hymn, but I'm not attributing it to Scripture, so stanza three. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, one little word shall fail him. And the last, I love this. And again, when you think and know what Luther in 1527, he's literally being held somewhat under captivity, partly for um, political use, but really ultimately in the sovereignty of God, his own protection in this Wartburg castle where he... Most people believe he penned these words. People are out to kill him. He had a price on his head, and he writes these last words. He's paid a big cost, big price, and he writes the last of these words. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Now listen to this. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom 